Thank you, Richard. You know what, there's nothing like having an easy passage to preach on, and this is not an easy passage. But we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training and correcting. And uh, I give thanks that God has given me a nudge and a help, more than a helping hand, to bring some words together tonight. So I speak in his name, his words for his glory. Okay, we're going to start with a little quiz. See if you can fill in the missing words uh, on this slide that's going to pop up in a moment. The blank blank is the name given to the phenomenon that seems to affect celebrities and professional dancers. As a result of grueling schedules and the close relationships they develop with their dance partners, their off-screen romances with their partners at home can be affected. Can anybody fill in the blank for me? Thank you. Yes, it's the Strictly Curse. Uh, Timely, we're getting close to the start of a new season. I'm not excited in the slightest. Um, But we've got some pictures here of a few of the celebrities who have fallen for the Strictly Curse. And sadly, there are many more. Only this week, you may well have heard of a past contestant who revealed the real reality of that pull towards their dance partner, even though they were in a long-term relationship. I wonder also if there's such a thing as the politics curse. Uh, MPs who spend a lot of time working long hours uh, with government colleagues, which then often lead to intimate relationships. Uh, This was a powerful image in 2021. Uh, If we can have the next slide, you may recall uh, Matt Hancock caught on camera in an adulterous embrace with a work colleague uh, and made even worse at that time given the COVID restrictions that were in place. Uh, He thought he was not going to be caught on camera. He thought he was hidden, but what was hidden came to light. Now, both of these situations have huge, long-lasting ramifications, not just for the individuals, uh, but for their families. And I also think that they have a habit of seeping into our lives too, as the whole thing gets played out into the media. And kind of our interest in it often feeds the fallout even more. I mean, who can forget uh, Wichity Grubbs, for Matt Hancock's public trial, forget anything else that happened, uh, but his constant uh, 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 voting on the jungle to be tested and humiliated. We, as the public, wanted to see him suffer, and a lot of that was as a result of the adulterous act that happened in a time that was incredibly difficult for the nation. It's easy to make light of this, uh, but it's a very serious matter. It's one of the Ten Commandments, number seven, but it's also indirectly referenced in many of more of them. So commandment one, you shall have no other gods but me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an image or bow down or worship them. Number eight, you shall not steal. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Because adultery is not only marital infidelity, it's infidelity to God as well. So whilst it might feel uh, uncomfortable or even painful talking about this, as Christians, we need to, because it matters greatly to God. 
and particularly in a world where infidelity is taken lightly, we need to both understand and absorb the Bible's teaching on it to be part of our spiritual armor, not only about this, but about the presence of sin more widely in our lives. So I'm going to read our short passage now. If you've got Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. So we're going to explore these three verses, but then I want to zoom the lens out a bit and explore a couple of other passages, both about adultery, but to tackle the question, what does the Bible have to teach each one of us about the reality of sin in all of our lives? So Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So we start with this passage, our passage from the Sermon of the Mount. And our first lens on this subject of adultery reveals the power of sin. You may recall Richard was exploring the subject of murder a few weeks ago. And we learnt there Similar here, that even looking at someone inappropriately or thinking about someone inappropriately is sinful. Because sin starts deep within our thoughts before it manifests into action. And in that passage we've just read as well, we have the connection between the eye, the hand, and the heart. The eye being the window through which these sinful thoughts enter the body. The hand that takes what it shouldn't. The heart where the sinful thoughts breed. And to me, it's a bit of a picture of an infection that creeps into a tiny little cut. But before you know it, it can take over the body with life-threatening impact. So we can't deny sin but we have to deal with it because so often the spread starts before we're even particularly conscious of what's going on. So how do we deal with the power of sin in our lives today without literally chopping limbs off? Well, I think one way is to consciously step away from experiences in life that may cause us to stumble or create unhealthy thoughts. That could be about monitoring the relationships that we have at work and elsewhere. It could be as simple as taking a bit of a break from social media when we find ourselves getting a bit too absorbed in it. I made the decision in 2015, much to the derision of my book club, to decide not to read any of the Fifty Shades of Grey books or go to the cinema and watch the films. Now, for those of you who recall, that was the trilogy of the moment. It grossed 570 million at the box office, so they weren't particularly missing my money. But the film caused huge controversy because of the nature of the relationship between the two main characters. And I just decided I didn't need to enter into that hype as it actually made me feel uncomfortable. 
That is not to criticize or challenge anybody who did read or watch, but I just wanted to share with you, I made a decision just not to go there. I was conscious that that was not something for me. And sometimes we do have to decide whether we are conforming to the world's path or we make a decision to actually step away from some of it. Romans 12 tells us not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to discern God's will for our lives. And that's about guarding the eye and the hand to preserve the heart from the power of sin. Let's look briefly now at the story of David and Bathsheba. And that's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And in this, we're going to explore the power of sin in another lens, how it can ripple. So here's the synopsis of the plot. David sees a woman bathing. You see that the eyes are at work, the wound is open. He finds out who she is. He sends a messenger to get her. She comes to the king, which he probably didn't have much choice. They slept together. She probably also didn't have much choice. She becomes pregnant. King David then sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and sends him to the front line, knowing that he will be killed in battle. Uriah is a loyal servant of the king. And then David marries Bathsheba, kind of saving her from widowhood and saving his own face as well. Lust, sexual immorality, deceit, murderous intent, all from looking out of a window. It impacted Bathsheba, impacted Uriah, the child that was conceived. It left lives of mourning and regret. And to me, that's a little bit like a domino chain. You know, they're beautifully set up. I'm going back to the sort of Roy Castle and the Guinness Book of Records. It must have taken hours to set them all up, but it just takes one tap and off they all go. And I think our Strictly Stars and politicians can probably relate to the domino effect when reputations, careers, and relationships are all impacted by adulterous affairs. So that's David and Bathsheba. We've looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at our third passage as we turn the lens on sin in our lives and look at the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 because it's in this passage where we see the remedy for sin. So here we have a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. She's brought to Jesus by the Pharisees and the religious leaders and placed in the midst of the crowd where Jesus is teaching. The teachers then quote the law of Moses saying, well, this woman needs to be stoned for her actions. And they test Jesus to see how he will respond. And he replies... Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And the teachers and the Pharisees, they all slip away, leaving the woman with Jesus in the crowd. And he asks her, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she replies. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We've sung of it. But this is amazing grace. Jesus didn't condemn the woman for her sin, but he did convict her of it. And he also convicted the religious teachers and the Pharisees of theirs too by the way he handled their challenge. Because Jesus is the remedy 
to sin. He loves us unconditionally in spite of our flaws and our weaknesses, and he calls us back to him when we stray. And I think we've seen this pharisaic response in the news so much recently, this swift and sharp condemnation of those who have fallen short in the public eye, because we all compare our sins to those in society around us. When we take a selfie, we think our sins are less powerful, less dangerous, less impactful, even more acceptable than the ones we often see played elsewhere. But in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says that all sin is disregard for God's law. All sin is infidelity to God. And it's not up to us to rank or categorize it. And all of our sin is done openly in the presence of God, whether we feel it's hidden or not. So it is a big deal. And yet, by the grace of God, we are not condemned. But did you notice that Jesus did say to the woman, go and sin no more. He presented her with a level of responsibility there. So let's turn the lens around again, take that selfie and look at ourselves and say, how do we respond to sin in our own lives? I'm going to share a couple of ways. And I think the first one is that it requires discipline. If you have trained for anything, a sporting event, army beckons, exams, those of you who have done those recently, you'll know they don't just happen. It takes thought, intent, and action. It takes discipline. And it's a discipline of remembering. John Newton, the former trade slaver who, slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, said near to the end of his life, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Because that's where we are. In fact, we are kind of both saints and sinners. We're called by God to be set apart, to be holy. That's the saint. And yet we constantly fall below standards. That's the sinner. And it's a constant tension and it can evolve denial and guilt. And so often we see ourselves as neither one of those things. We forget that we're set apart to be holy when we came to faith, and we also deny the reality of sin in our lives, especially when we compare to others. I last preached a month ago, I don't know if you recall, but I did encourage us all to stop at some point in the summer and sort of take stock of how life was going with God. Do you remember the sort of Times Square analogy uh, that I gave? Well, I did just that myself over my summer holidays, and I used this excellent book. I read it again. I haven't read it for a while. Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. Uh, I read that over the summer again. What's a respectable sin? Well, Jerry helps us talk about that, and it's those sins that are so subtle that we just see them as part of our character, that's just me, that's just who I am. And we just tolerate them or ignore them and, and really don't do anything about them. And through prayer and reflection over the holiday, God really nudged me towards five of these really subtle sins that just little, little niggly habits 
that I do as a, a regularly. You know, it's things that really do let God down. And so I committed, I'm going to really crack on with these. It was pretty depressing. Just two weeks later, as I'm reflecting back on my journal, it's like, yep, all five. I've spectacularly messed up on all of them. But it's not an option for me to close that journal and go, well, that was then. You know, me and God had to chat about that, but it's all fine. I need to keep remembering those sinful areas that I am prone to stumble in if I'm going to hand them to God. Because then I need a discipline of repenting to stop the power of those sins on my life. Repent. It's a very old biblical word. It's one that we don't really use too often, even here at the six, often found in liturgy. But it has quite a few meanings, and one of which is to have deep concern about sin, and in that deep concern, to turn away from it, to change our behavior. And in 2 Samuel, repentance was the gateway to David being forgiven and restored. Because when the light was shone by Nathan on David's rippling sinful behaviors, David acknowledged his sin by saying, I have sinned against God. Repentance was the first thing that Jesus called his followers to do when he started his earthly ministry. He said, repent and believe the good news. Because repentance really matters to God. And yet, I think we take it quite lightly these days. We kind of confuse God with that fluffy, cuddly bear who loves us unconditionally and he's always ready for a hug when we fancy giving one. Or, as Jerry Bridges explores, we've made our sinful behavior so respectable, we put it on the scale against murder and adultery, and we consider it fairly trivial or insignificant. We deny our sins and we sort of picture God in rose-tinted specks, only seeing our best bits. We need to remember we are not condemned for our sin. The grace of God, Jesus' death on the cross, there's the remedy. But we are convicted of it. And so repentance is something we need to make a habit of doing regularly because of that tension to live the godly life and the sinful nature. And some of the deepest transformation in our lives often happens when we repent. And yet we often kind of feel uncomfortable, forget how to do it, don't know how to do it. And it's really, really simple. It's about kind of holding up the mirror to our lives, seeing those things that have impacted others negatively, things that have not reflected God's love, and just saying sorry. It's about taking off the mask in front of the God who knows everything anyway. It's about consciously turning away from those infections that can spread around our bodies. It's about naming that first domino that if we touch it, it's going to knock many more down. And the more we get into the habit of repenting, the more we kind of need, recognize the need to repent because spiritual growth involves us becoming more aware of our sins because we long to be more like Christ. We long to turn away from those things. So day by day, we need to call on the power of the Spirit to convict us of our sins in repentance, to grow deeper as distinctive daily disciples, and to give us strength and wisdom to work on them. Because it's not all about us. We didn't make ourselves saints. We found ourselves in a holy position when we accepted Christ, and by the grace of God, 
Jesus did the work, and it's the continual work of the Spirit in our lives too that will transform us. And we often think that the gospel is for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the good news. No, we still need to hear the good news every day. And how do we do that? That's time spent with God, growing our knowledge of his teaching in the Bible, deepening our relationship with Jesus in prayer, and renewing our minds to be transformed into the likeness of the Spirit. When we spend more time with God, we do get more connected to him. We become more of a reflection of him. We bear fruit. And that is about dependence. Dependence on God's power and his presence is where we find the strength to take the strength to deal with sin in our lives. And Galatians 5 talks about living by the Spirit's power as opposed to our own strength. And it says this, Galatians 5 from verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control there is no law against these things so when we think of those niggly respectable sins in our lives we can give them to God in prayerful repentance and ask him to grow this fruit in us perhaps one or two in particular to serve as the antidote to that behavior and to bring a stop to the power and the ripple that it has over us In Jesus, there is no strictly curse. We are no longer under the curse of sin, but have been freed from its power by the grace of God and the saving work of Christ on the cross. We are work in progress. We are both saints and sinners, and he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. We're definitely not perfect And our sins grieve God just as much as the sins of celebrities and politicians. And sin ripples. It encroaches into many aspects of our lives and the lives of others. Our thoughts are as powerful as our deeds in causing us to sin. And nothing is hidden from our all-seeing, all-knowing God. So let's offer ourselves, let's offer the good and the bad to God in repentance, keep renewing our minds, transforming our lives through spending time with God each day in prayer, in study, and worship. I finish with the final two verses of Psalm 139, which I think express this call to discipline and dependence perfectly, which we can use as a daily prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen.